Well, we are in Lent, and what we've been primarily doing in Lent is learning how to recognize our life as it actually is uh, before God, um, to learn to just pay more attention than we might uh, normally, and with the hope that that would teach us to just pay more attention in general. And one of the questions that Lent helps us to ask and answer is what do we do with the prodigal bits of us? Now that word prodigal is not a word you hear every day and we actually we never hear it actually except for in this story. But it comes from the word prodigious which just means kind of a large amount. It's like that was a, that's a prodigious amount of money or you know, something like that. So it just means a surprisingly large amount of something. And the story was first called the parable of the prodigal son because his sin is so stunning. I mean, he's basically saying to his dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want what's mine now. That's, that would be prodigious enough. But then he takes it and squanders it. And so it became to be known as the parable of the prodigal son. Well, in the last 10 or 15 years in kind of scholarly circles or preachy circles, there's been kind of a revival of this being known as the parable of the prodigiously loving father. And of course, both those things are, are going on in this story. And so we just wanna look at it tonight along with a little peek in some of the other readings, as a way for us to try to discern a dependable pattern for spiritual growth. And so if you just keep this story before your mind tonight, um, I, the first thing I wanna say is that a, a dependable pattern for ongoing spiritual growth begins with assessment. It begins with the true recognition of where one is. And of course, that I would say that it cannot have guilt or shame associated with it. Um, uh, that would be my preference, but let's get real. Sometimes it does have frustration or guilt or sometimes even shame associated with it. But the way I would rather commend it to you is what if you just decided you wanted to pick up guitar and you're trying to learn to play bar chords and the strings keep buzzing, you're sinning like you're doing it wrong and you notice it. And the harder you try and the more you notice it, maybe the more frustrated you get until Travis comes along and says, hey, well, try positioning your hand this way. And suddenly the strings stop buzzing. But you wouldn't be there except for the process of placing yourself in what's real. And I almost feel like I need to like, apologize on behalf of my generation of Christian leaders that you have not been taught this. That you've not been taught that there's actually a childlike, joyful, like learning to play an instrument way of learning to follow Jesus. That is not guilt-based, it's certainly not shame-based, and while it has its humans ups and downs in terms of the way we feel about something, we can't, you know, we can't control the way we feel. Our feelings are spontaneous, they're involuntary, they just are what they are. So they're gonna be there and they're gonna be what they are, but it was never intended that our journey into Christ's likeness would be consumed by negative feelings because God's so awesome and he paid such an undescribable price and I don't live up to it. Therefore, I am bound to live the rest of my life in guilt and shame. That's not what's in view here. 
What the spiritual masters know is sort of, sort of like a 10 or 12-year-old kid sitting in his bedroom, frustrating, maybe holding a guitar that's too big for him and the fretboard doesn't really fit his hands and he's kind of frustrated really trying to learn to do this. What the spiritual masters knew is that silence and solitude are the kinds of places where they create space for God, space for Travis to walk in and say, hey, if you held your wrist this way, you know, you would really do better. So silence and solitude removes our, pers- our, our protective distractions. It kind of forces us to deal with our inner chaos and it becomes to us, as Henry Nouwen has said, the place of conversion, our ongoing conversion. So if you just think of all the complex totality of who you are as a human being and the ongoing conversion of those places, you, I, you know, just picture that sun Maybe one night after a long night, maybe it's three o'clock in the morning after a long night of drinking and hooking up, and he's, all of a sudden he's alone. He's in silence, and he's in solitude, and he begins to notice what's real about him. In his case, probably an inadvertent silence or solitude, but nevertheless, undoubtedly the place of conversion for him. And so in Lent, when we give you these little practices, when we go into silence and solitude, the whole objective is to do nothing. It's not to try to make something spiritual happen. Rather, in solitude and silence, you're learning to stop doing, to stop producing, to stop pleasing people, to stop entertaining ourselves, to stop obsessing about stuff, to stop doing anything except for to place ourselves kind of just nakedly before God. So if I read that sentence again, you'd probably all find things that you could hook to. For me, it would be stop producing. Everything in me wants to go, what, the H-E double toothpicks? Stop producing, I would stop being. I don't really innately know how to stop producing because somewhere deep within me is this kind of correlation that I'm only a self or probably at least only a valuable self to anybody to the degree that I'm producing something good, something helpful, something useful. I mean, I suppose I could have worse vices, (laughs) but literally like I am hooked on being useful, absolutely hooked. So even when I go somewhere to speak and stuff, you know, which I do all the time, I always say to people, look, I'm just here to be useful. However I can serve you, whatever I can do to be useful, I'm just, uh, see what I mean? But, but see, as sort of noble as that might sound, and, and I guess in some sense it is a positive character trait, but I also know that what's underneath it is that when I'm being useful to somebody, then I'm being valued, right? And so it's the way to find ongoing sort of constant value. And in solitude and silence, that kind of stuff stops and it brings to the surface our inner conflicts, our distresses and longings, And the reason most of us don't really like silence and solitude is either we've experienced this to be true or we intuitively believe it's gonna be true that sometimes this is upsetting and painful. (laughs) I mean, to really recognize my father's servants have it better than I do, what the hell am I doing? I'm eating the food of pigs and my father's servants have it a lot better than mine. That had to be a bit painful, are you feeling me here? That had to be a bit distressful But we need it. Here's why we need that kind of silence and solitude. We need it to locate ourself. 
because most of us lose a sense of any real self as we go through the daily, weekly, monthly, annual rhythms of our life. We lose any sense of kind of just a cherished selfness before God. And so the kind of quiet things that Lent teaches us, it helps us to locate just what, whatever's real in the story in Joshua that Beth read us tonight. What was real for them is they'd crossed the Jordan River, they'd set up this memorial, they could now eat the produce from the land, the manna stopped, and it became for them a place of, wow, God is alive and he works his ha- on behalf of his people. And what they were experiencing was today, God has rolled away the reproach that was ours in Egypt. That's what was real. And they noticed it and they built an altar to that. The prodigal, on the other hand, he gets what he wanted, he's living the dream, but he began to be in need. See, he located himself. He began to realize that he was in need. Now, of course, he's in monetary need, but you know, as you can imagine, the story's being told by Jesus to show the fullness of his need. And then if you look at the gospel reading, it says that he came to himself. Can you hear in that? He located himself. Uh, It's like he came to his senses or he came into his right mind or that he began to think accurately about himself, as I said, comparing his situation with the servants. All right, so that's the first thing. In Lent and in these fastings that are meant to create space and, and forms of silences and solitudes, whether it's the taking away of noise or food or whatever you're doing, you're trying to find you. Once you find, once you found yourself, you have to locate yourself in a story. You have to locate yourself on a map or in a context. And we're kind of gently guided like a master storyteller poet towards this when he says, I will arise and go to my father. And of course, what Jesus was knowing that the Jews of his day would hear is that going to your father was kind of a euphemism for repenting, for turning, for converting, and aligning yourself again with the father and his will as the prophets of Israel constantly called them to. So I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have missed the mark. Look at your passage. I have missed the mark. I have sinned against heaven, which is kind of to say the will of God, but I've also sinned before you personally. Thus, there's a relational tear. Thus, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you please just treat me as one of your servants? I know I have no right to be asked to be a son again. I wished you dead but could you at least make me like one of your servants so I could at least have something to eat? So this business of locating yourself in a story or on a map is meant to answer the purpose question about why would the church practice Lent? Why would Christians for 2,000 years practice what we call the spiritual disciplines? Why would anybody pursue spiritual growth? If all that Christianity is about is that Jesus died, shed his blood, it then somehow covers my sin so I get to go to heaven when I die. If that's the totality of Christianity, why would anybody pursue spiritual growth? And this is why locating yourself in the story of God, your, your, your actual true self, once you got that, then you have to locate it in this story. And this story essentially is God's intention to have a cooperative people on the earth as his partners. That's what he wanted from Adam and Eve. 
It's what he wanted from Israel, and it's what he wants from what we call the church. And this comes through in the reading from Corinthians that Jody read this. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. All the stuff that the prodigal was involved in, it's all gone. The new is here, as we read. And God has committed to these prodigal sons and daughters the message of reconciliation. And that's not a guilt trip for witness more. That's an invitation to be God's cooperative friends and all that he's doing. For we are Christ's ambassadors, as Paul said, as if God were making his appeal for all the prodigal sons and daughters to come home through us. So this then answers the purpose question of why we pursue spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness for the sake of the world. We do it so that we can be precisely that kind of person. Like, like if we we're just playing word association and I say ambassador, Probably you picture a woman in a really, you know, fantastic Ralph Lauren business suit, or maybe you, you know, you picture some, you know, really nice looking guy with gray hair and a, you know, $3,000 business suit and, you know, Gucci loafers and they're getting off a private jet in Belgium or something, right? So when you picture, I say ambassador, that's what you picture. Well, in Jesus's day, they would have pictured something like someone who speaks on the behalf of another power. So we use the word the same day today, the same way, essentially, but they would have pictured something different and they would have known that Israel was always called to be the spokesman of God, to be salt and light, to be, to be the people through whom God would affect the earth. So we pursue formation, and this is why I wanted you to read the story tonight. So here's the road, picture the story. And picture the middle aisle here, the church is the road. And every night, about this time, about 5.30 this time of year, every night, the Father's looking down the road. I wonder if tonight's the night. Every night. I wonder if this is the time. Will today be the day that he comes home? And so we don't do these things to please the Father. The Father's already pleased and is like anxiously desirous for us to come home. We do it so that we can become the kinds of persons who naturally hear, feel these words, naturally and routinely and easily become the kinds of people who can play a bar chord. Does Travis look to be straining to you? No, why? Because he's become the kind of person for whom it's natural and routine. And you need an imagination for it's possible to become the kind of person who naturally and easily no longer hates or manipulates or lies or is covetous. That's what we're being invited into. It's a different kind of life so that we can demonstrate and embody and announce the rule and reign of God or the kingdom of God. This is why Proverbs 23, and I, I don't remember where I got this paraphrase or how much of it I made up, but this is why I like this kind of paraphrase of Proverbs 4.23. Put everything you have into the care of your heart. That hidden, determinative part of you. Put everything you have into the care of your heart for it determines what your life amounts to. And can we just get real and say that the average American and even the average American Christian does not actually believe that? 
They, we actually don't believe the Jesus we call our master. Because you want to know what he said one day to a group of Christians like this? He said, it's not the things external to you that pollute you. Don't worry so much about what you eat or what you drink. It's from inside your heart that come the things that pollute you. And this is what the proverb is getting at. Put everything you have into the care of your heart. And this is what the church helps us do at least once a year in Lent. But the idea is that Lent would teach us uh, in Lent how to do this beyond Lent. So I, a few th- more things I wanna say here quickly. Here's how I think you can do this. This is, a re- this is the reliable pattern that I wanna commend to you tonight. First is, I want you just to decide to live as Jesus' student. That is to say that the fundamental overarching vision for your life would be to be an apprentice of Jesus. That seeing the greatness and superiority of God and his kingdom and the role that you're called to be in it, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that you would value that over anything else. That's what the stories in the Bible are meant to tell us when that woman pushes through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. She saw the superiority of Jesus. When they cut a roof, uh, a hole in the roof and let their friends down before Jesus. They got it. That's why Jesus told that story. He was commending their faith. He was commending that they got it. They understood the superiority of what Jesus was announcing and demonstrating and embodying. Then secondly, so first, decide to live as Jesus' student. Secondly, just begin to try to obey his teachings. So I go to take uh, guitar lessons from Travis. And Travis says, Todd, you, you really, you have to correct your posture or, and you have to hold the guitar different and you really need to work on the position of your wrist or you're never gonna play bar chords well. So he, I, I make him my master and I apprentice myself to him and I begin to try to do the things that he's telling me to do. That's all that's going on here. It has nothing to do with earning your way to heaven. It has nothing to do with pleasing your father. He's already pleased and will rejoice the day you say, Dad, come here, listen to this. I can do it. I finally learned to play a bar chord, and it actually sounds nice, right? And and this is what Jesus anticipated, and and we know this um, because at the end of his most, what most people would consider his most beautiful and stunning and insightful teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of it, he says, you're only wise if you hear these words and put them into practice. See, if I hear about my posture and I hear about how I'm holding the guitar in my wrist and I don't do anything with it, I am not actually apprenticing myself, but I'm just building my guitar life on sand. But if I hear those words and I begin to put them into practice as, as like a really loving, enthusiastic student of somebody, well, then I actually begin to become a different kind of person. All right, next, observe why you fail. Just be present to the moments of your life because you're gonna fail. And if you're anything like me, you're probably gonna fail routinely. This is what happened to Peter when Peter said, Lord, I will never deny you. And the Lord goes, yeah, I know you really think that, Peter, and I think Peter really did think it. I think Peter actually believed in and trusted in his intentions. Okay, everybody listen to this. I need everybody's attention right here. I think Peter sincerely believed in and trusted in his intentions. But Jesus saw his current capacities 
and the present shape of his inner man. And Jesus knew that when push came to shove, Peter's intentions wouldn't be what was determinative. What would be determinative was the present shape of his character. Again, Jesus is not being mean. He's just saying, Peter, I I know you think that tomorrow you're gonna get up on stage and play bar chords, but you're, you're not. I mean, Jesus could just see something just that practical, that simple. Because what Jesus could see is that Peter's brain was not gonna be able to stop what his inner man was wired to do. And this is why discipleship, according to information, has been bankrupt and will continue to be bankrupt because this is not merely about information. This is about a fundamental change in our souls. So first, we decide to live as Jesus' student. We begin to obey his teachings. We observe why we fail. And then with childlike joy, we work with the means of grace. That is to say, we begin to do in reliance on the Spirit what will remove the causes of our failure. So again, I, I take Travis at his word and I work on my posture and I hold the guitar differently and I, and I work, even though it kind of hurts a little bit because I'm used to doing it the wrong way. And it feels foreign to hold my wrist differently, but I'm really gonna learn to do that. And the spiritual masters say that this is what's known as indirect effort. It's what's known as training rather than trying. Aren't you all a little sick of moral effort, you know, in that sense? Well, what if instead of this sort of moral effort, like Peter thought he could put in, what if we began to train ourselves in the things of the Spirit? What if we began to train ourselves in the things of God? So what's God's view of all this? So the lost son arose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father, I want you to hear these verbs, saw him. But not saw him, like saw this phone. He saw him. The brokenness, the hurt, the disgust, the guilt, the shame, the literal dirtiness of his body the hunger of his stomach, his father saw him. Look at at the gospel reading. Felt compassion on him. Can you believe that? After his son basically wished him dead, he feels compassion on him. He runs to him, which I don't have time to explain, the indignity of a land-owning man running, completely indignant. And he embraces him, and he kisses him. And this is why the psalm we read tonight says, blessed is, is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and the Lord does not count them against them. The psalmist says, offer prayers to that God. Look at your psalm. He'll teach you and guide you in the way that you should go. Look at the psalm again for a minute. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but have to be controlled by bit and bridle or they won't come to you. Don't do that. Don't do what the prodigal was doing if you look at the gospel reading where he says, I kept it all inside. My bones were turning to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. It felt as if all the juices of my life were drying up. Then I let it all out. And I said, God, I make a clean breast of my failures before you. And I like the way Eugene gets this in the message. Suddenly the pressure was gone. 
my guilt dissolved and my sin disappeared. So as we have a moment of quiet now, I want to place these words before your mind. You might want to just close your eyes and and try to make yourself present best you can to these words. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven and who through appropriate and joyful disciplines is being present to her or his life. And is thus being guided and taught by our prodigiously loving Father. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven and who through appropriate and joyful disciplines is being present to her or his life and is thus being guided and taught by our prodigiously loving Father.